Welcome to this week's episode of From the Lighthouse. Today, Associate Professor Jane Messer and I talk about two short stories, Baggage Claim and Edgeware Road. Okay, so Jane, you paired together Patty O'Reilly, an Australian writer, with Graham Greene's um, A Little Place Off the Edgeware Road. Uh, so we've got a sort of a, a, a an unusual coupling in many in many respects with um, green writing probably what would that have been fifties sixties and Riley uh, a very recent two thousand and eighteen story so definitely can see some um, some shifts in the approaches and the styles but um, what what did you like about uh, bringing together those two stories um well i guess technically they're both third person like i was looking for some third person stories and they're that and with the topic was focalization so there was that but but also i wanted um some horror or some fantasy or some you know some gothic so we have the horror of a little place off the edgeware road uh, and I was actually really surprised that Graham Greene had written in that genre because, you know, we don't really associate him with that. realist, isn't he? I mean, it's so, yeah. so many of his novels and it's, it's certainly what has earned him his reputation. Um, so I, I, was, I was surprised too by the, the foray into, into horror, but horror, horror it definitely was. Yeah. <laughs> and we will talk more about that. Um, and then Baggage Claim... By Patty O'Reilly. Look, for the last two or three, four years, Patty O'Reilly keeps sort of popping up, winning prizes as a short story writer, and I think she's published quite a few books. And so I had been thinking, you know, I really must read something by her. And then so I looked at a few of her stories, and I quite like this one. It It just reminded me of people like... Everyone I know, um, the culture just seems so familiar. It's so Australian. It's so local. Um, yeah, and I don't think it's perhaps her most brilliant story, um, but it's very, very readable, and there's some fun things that we can talk about in it. Yeah, look, I think that um, that wonderful sort of moment where we do get all of those very familiar elements, Tullamarine, uh, airport, the, 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 the sort of the iconic cliched trip to Bali. Mm. Um, and then we just get that wonderful sort of twist that we expect from the short story where things get a little bit weird. And I think that the, the, the erotic aspect of uh, trying on someone else's clothing and that whole play with at what point, um, you know, sort of at what point are you sort of more yourself when you're dressing up or, or when, you're, when, when you're lying back in somebody else's frilly underwear um, was, was sort of naughty. It was a very sort of uh, adult story. And it was also a really interesting um, exploration of, of focalisation, as you say, because we did end up really in this very sort of close intimate world of of um and bray um largely focalized through bray um which i think was an interesting um you know sort of added an interesting angle 
to some of the sex scenes. Um, yeah. And yeah. so just I think in terms of the positioning of the reader with that story, uh, because we do end up in this in this sort of rather uncomfortable place where we're I think identifying with these two characters and their naughtiness and their decision to do what's so clearly wrong <laughs> um, and and yet at the same time uncomfortable in in in, in that moment um, oh. of rifling through somebody's luggage it, it, it's like they're, they're yeah they're kind of pushed into trespassing on that baggage because they've been hard done by like there's this sort of ethical dilemma that they face which is just, I mean, it's, you know, not a huge one. Well, I mean, it is and it isn't. But, you know, they've been mistreated by the airline that they gave them, in all honesty, a very accurate description of their own bag and they ended up with this other one. Um, something like the leopard skin. Um, yeah, yeah. The leopard creams, <laughs> which actually said so much. And, and in terms of thinking about writing um, and the use of effective detail, I mean, didn't that say a lot about the two? Oh, at every point in the story, the detailing is great. But, yeah, they do, they do not own a large, expensive red plush suitcase. They own quite... Sorry to every, everyone who has a leopard skin patterned bag, but it's a bit tacky. Um, so then she, you know, she's got that, I've got to go to work tomorrow and there's a certain sort of level of professionalism and, you know, what am I going to do? And, and there's that nice, you know, very real motivation, which I think like when we're thinking about, well, if, if they feel uncomfortable opening the bag, why did they open it? Well, there was a reason to open it. And then, of course, what was in it? I mean, I was excited reading. Yeah. <laughs> it was the transgressive nature of it, wasn't it? Because yeah. you just had this constant crossing of boundaries that, um, you know, because in a sense, I, I guess Miskia goes from, you know, sort of the uh, whatever her cheap batik print dress that no doubt was, you know, sort of quite um, revealing one imagined um, or at least uh, sort of um, perhaps more less elegant than, than the fabric that was in this uh, this suitcase. And in, in that uh, exchange, you do get this feeling of how, um, I guess, how transmutable uh, our positions are in society where you know sort of just that mere act of putting on a you know probably thousand dollar trench coat um or you know sort of the 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 makeup or the this or the that yeah i think that that there's a kind of like it's the class stuff to do with barley which miska raises really she really pushes that forward saying you know i don't, I don't want to go to bali you know i don't actually like going there and having my you know Australian money and everybody's poorer and there's all these sort of, uh, you know, drunken white Australian kind of culture there. And, and yet she doesn't get to that except through the opening of the bag and confronting this sort of wealth that this woman has, has and has sort of acquired yet more things through, you know, because she's bought this beautiful silver jewellery, she's bought really beautiful batik clothing, She's had all this money. She's had a trip to Bali that they can't afford. And it's sort of interesting because Miska and Bray both enjoy these, this wealth, these objects. But then Miska then is, 
it, it also makes her uncomfortable about the fact that she was there at all, that she was there holidaying there. I, I found, I thought there was a sort of, yeah, there was just some nice complexity, some kind of moral conundrums that not, it's not played out in any way didactically, but it's just kind of explored, yeah, as you say, by trying on these different costumes and exploring, you know, different aspects of the self through that. There's no doubt that in that story there's this really fascinating exploration of the way that, you know, sort of you, you, you want to judge and, and you want to know um, that there's right and wrong, but in actual fact um, with each little action that the character um, sort of d d takes place in really sort of shifts our perspective on, you know, sort of where those boundaries lie, I think. Um, and the, the very sort of closed, intimate space of their their room, their apartment. Um, and, I, and I think that that's something that short stories do really well is that they sort of amplify the, the circumstances of their characters in a way that really adds to the effect of the story. Um, you know, they're, they're just back from their holiday. Um, they're sort of in this, in this sort of state where life is about to resume take on its, its its normal dimensions again um and just at that moment we have the intrusion of the strangers uh the strangers travel case and so it, so it is just this sort of interchangeability of the human and and the way that um you know sort of the, the, that there is this this sort of role that we play um and it's often it's often a very troubling uh it's often a very troubling role um, and in the instance of baggage claims, quite naughty too. <laughs> Going back to that that um, notion of what a, what as, you know what makes it a short story and how is it contained and why is it working as a short story? I mean, you've got that sort of in a sense that status quo opening that they've they've returned from something. The story is not about their trip to Bali or. The, the flight home or whatever, it, it just starts, they're already back. And then you have this, you know, in the, 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 the problem of the lost suitcase, but that, that in itself is not interesting. But then, as you called it, the intrusion of the, the replacement suitcase with all the things that unfold, you know, the Pandora's box, I guess. Um, and so then you've got the pressure in terms of the time, the time capsule of the story of the next day, she's got to get this sorted out. She's got to be able to go to work the next day with her makeup, looking professional. This sort of period of time, their holiday period is about to end. And so there's this lovely temporal framing. So as it were, the story signals that it's not going to go on for very long. And actually it doesn't. It's just like I think what one one sleep the next day something like that um, the day of unpacking it just does that so beautifully because it says so much about them and their life and uh, you know if you think of the, the women Kenan talking about the focalization the ideological aspects uh, you know with Niska saying I hated Bali you know there's so many what does she say. Um, she had, well, it's not, it's a narration. She hadn't been sorry to get on the plane to come home. Bali was hot, bloated with slobby drunk white people trying to bargain down people who earned a hundredth of their wage. 
So there, there is that very clear sort of, I guess, it, it, and that is one of the techniques that I think happens really well in this story is, is that sort of unreliability of the um, of the focalizers, which then allows the reader to realise that the ideological focalization of the story is something outside that of the two characters, the limited sort of focalizing of, of the two characters. But isn't that, that, in that instance, that's not unreliable. That is her... Well, that's what I'm saying in terms of the focalizer's unreliability in a, in a sense because... Oh, you mean in, in terms that they, tra- they argue and change their minds and shift yeah. around? Oh, yeah. yeah, so 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 in the sense that um, even as we have these two characters who I guess um, you know sort of have lines drawn around their um, I guess or, or because in in terms of say for example Bray with his uh, sort of somewhat troubling ability to now hit on <laughs> you know sort of women that, that does worry her somewhat and and then the, her. Um, you know, sort of her concerns and fears that she that she sort of carries with her about her insecurities with her thighs and <laughs> you know all all of the various things that that trouble these characters and, and make them sort of flawed and interesting. Um, we also have a story that is actually, I guess, problematizing. You know, sort of the ability for some people to take holidays in places where you know, you know, sort of people are you know, sort of so dependent on this, um, you know, sort of this tourist, you know, sort of this wealthy tourist who comes in, or the lesser but still more wealthy tri- tourist. Um, and you know, the ability for the story to not leave, say, Bali unproblematic, for example. Yeah. Um, but actually, interestingly, I think it's Miska who finds, well, no, it shifts, doesn't it? She finds the whole Bali thing more problematic and she, that, she, that's the line she's sticking to. She, begin, she first finds the bag problematic, then Bray kind of encourages the, her, then he kind of withdraws and doesn't want to do it anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> and tries to pack. I mean, if, really, he tries to pack the bag again carefully. How sweet is that? Um, <laughs> uh, that would not be possible to do, I think. Um, and then she has become kind of bit, sort of, you know, yeah, lays a fair about it all, which actually I felt a little bit, I was a little bit, I found, I found that last change in her a little bit hard to believe. It was quite an extravagant image of her at the end, wasn't it? And and I think that's where it's interesting because, you know, there there is something really illicit about, you know, sort of this glimpse into a couple's, um, you know, sort of domestic or intimate zone. Um, and, And we see these two as, you know, sort of on one hand, every couple you know, and, you know, there, there, there is this sort of in, interesting exploration. And you do wonder if it's, um, you know, a little bit classist in, 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 in the way that we do end up with, um, you know, sort of, I guess, the, I guess the, the, the sort of the, the hypersexualization of it all and the, uh, that image of her in that, um, what would you say? That's a, that's a very wanton image, isn't it? You know, sort of in someone else's underwear with, with, um, you know, a cubic curl escaping. He's in the underwear, I think, or, you know, 
Um, so that's his, that, you know, that, that's very much, you know, sort of the point at which I think he's going to give up on the effort to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so there's something very, very base about what, you know, sort of ultimately drives these characters to, 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 to do either the right thing or the wrong thing, which I think is fun. And, yeah. and I think it's yeah. also, you know, sort of the, 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 the story's attraction is, is the fact that it is, it is naughty and it is inappropriate and it still manages not to forget that there are boundaries and those boundaries are being crossed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it plays and throws that back at the reader because, you know, it's very hard to read those scenes without sort of chuckling a little bit and, you know, sort of having that smile, which is then, yeah. of course, you know, sort of part of the dynamic of the story. And, and I think that sort of, you know, that infinite regress, you know, the way that you get them trying on clothes, becoming, you know, something else, you know, going to Bali, you know, or, you know, all of those things that just yeah. become these little turbines within the story and mean that it's not just, you know, sort of a single layered di- or one dimensional story. There. No, no, no. It's a little glint and, in and it's, Anna in a sense, isn't it? <laughs> <You know? laughs> she says, open it, this is towards the end, open it, she said to Bray, and he says, so we are that kind of people now? And that, that sort of question, which is directed at from one character to another character, but it really is such an open question. It's a question to the reader to kind of invite them in and think, which is saying, think about it. Are they that kind of people? Are you that kind of person? Would you do, you know, it's, it has so many sort of resonances, that question. Then there's a sort of orgy where, that follows. She says, shut up, open it. <laughs> she can't get back into it. It's sort of, it, it is very erotic. The whole thing becomes, and they've eaten the nuts and plastic t- tasting chocolate. Bray hadn't been able to fit into any of the clothes except a stretchy singlet and a floral long sleeve. Oh, the image there is just marvellous. And that's what I say, is that real sort of glimpse into an, a, a sort of an Australiana kind of um, vibe with the, 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 the sort of stereotypical, you know, sort of type. And, and I think that in asking what sort of people we are, it is throwing into light that tendency that we all have to categorise and and judge and generalise. And, you know, so, so it does. It just sets off that chain of signifiers, I think. The motif of the suitcase, the, the wrong suitcase, it's been so often used in spy thrillers, in, you know, crime fiction, how many films has somebody have we seen where somebody ends up with the wrong suitcase and there's money in it there's a gun in it there's something there's something in it that you know is criminal in some way whereas this suitcase i mean it's so um it, it's it's so touristy and banal like the story is just so suburban there's nothing there's nothing it it creates this kind of erotic transgressive fury between them as it were but the 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 suitcase itself is so it's really just quite innocent well you know it's a standard um sort of trick of theater isn't it you know like that that sort mm-hmm. of vaudeville you know act of somebody coming out and on stage dragging their suitcase behind them throwing it open and then you know sort of with each costume that they bring in sort of amazing the audience with their ability to try to to be so many different um sort of uh, yeah. people and and so i think there is that vaudeville aspect to it and and i think you know sort of the other thing is it's about that malleability of identity the performativity of identity but also the way that you know sort of the the objects around us 
shape us as, 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 as much as we imagine that we're sort of um, imposing our will upon them by choosing this or choosing that. And, you know, sort of the ability for her to sort of become, I guess, almost a, um, you know, sort of a, a, a sort of a high class, um, well, I don't know what you'd say, but, but you know, there was that uh, sort of real sense that in glimpsing her with that, uh, you know, sort of obviously expensive clothes, with the obviously expensive, he was then, um, you know, sort of, I guess, that, that, that she was eroticised in a way that sort of also plays with desire and what it is that we desire, even with the person that we're most intimate with. Um, so, so, so I, th- I think it was a really um, sort of it, it was it was it was a really fun story to read, and I think that um, you know she, she was naughty and she was, and I think that's something that good writing does is that it it it, it does it does challenge and it, it isn't afraid to sort of um, I guess step on a few toes and 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 play with you know sort of stereotypes and uh, you know it, it, a good good writing can seldom be, be politically correct. You know, just because otherwise it's boring. Well, and they're uncertain about what they want to be. Well, you know, probably Misko a little bit more than, a little bit more than Bray. Um, And just, and all those sort of, you know, we were talking about speech and dialogue a few weeks ago and the fact that the interesting speech and dialogue in, in narrative, there has to be misunderstandings, there has to be, you know, lies, there has to be, uh, you know, no turn, turn taking and questions not answered and so on. And, and, and I guess also just as a little segue between the Green and and the O'Reilly is that there's this real sort of um, interrogation of, of what life really is, you know, so so, 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 you know, sort of behind the shut doors of the, I guess, the, the, the normality of, of a couple, you know, sort of who are doing all of the tick you know standard things the trip to to bali the work the you know sort of the the, the trades it's like, what does it actually look like behind the scenes and it's the same with green isn't it because you do have that glimpse of somebody you know sort of wondering is he the only person who who wanders around with the sense of the of death and the body and the terribleness of the body um as, as almost you know dragging this corpse around i mean that was a sense yeah of, uh, actually that wasn't i mean that wasn't in one of the notes that I put down about these stories, preparing for today, it was almost the only thing I put down. Just thinking, oh, both stories about people's thoughts and actions that they wouldn't talk about readily to a friend. Point being that that's what fiction does so well. It talks it to us about away at the, it really scratches away at the veneer. Yeah, absolutely, it scratches away at the veneer. And now we turn to A Little Place Off the Edgeware Road by Graham Greene, our second story. So the story is very much about what's beneath the veneer of life, you know, that that our character Craven, you know, who loathes his body, who in some, you know, his body betrays his better instincts. He'd rather be, you know, in the British Museum reading room where he forgets about his body and, and just, you know, reads and enters literature. And yet he's always, you know, his desires and his frustrations and his his lust, which he particularly, um, which particularly disgusts him, brings him back. And then we move into this, you know, this one horrific story, wonderfully, you know, horrific story of a, a potentially the murderer sitting beside him and so on and so forth. What what stops it from just being plain gory and gruesome? 
you know, which a lot of modern horror is just gore for the sake of splatter. Look, I think it's because it's it's a it's a it's a profoundly textured um, sort of um, prose where you actually have layers. You know, it's it's the layering and it's the the, the, the sort of the various. Um, I guess the, the various themes that are being explored that are introduced, you know, you have that sort of um, mind-body split where, you know, the mind is doing its um, ethereal sort of work in literature and, and the museum and all of that um, higher, you know, sort of supposedly higher calibre work while the body is just dragging you down with its its yeah. needs, its sex, its, you know, sort of um, foulness. Um, and then, you know, on, on top of that, you do, you've got this sort of, um, character who Craven, um, you know, which actually even in the name sort of carries with it that sort of sense of both, you know, sort of longing, I crave, you know, something, but also the, the sort of the Raven. It's, it's perfect name for a character of this, um, type. And then, of course, because it's got that perennially fascinating theme of exploring mortality, um, and it, it does that in a very self-conscious way, you've got the, you've got the, the sort of debaucherous Roman empire, you've got films, you've got silent films, you, you know, it's that layering up of the text that makes it rich and takes it out of the realm of just being a one-hit wonder where it's about gore and shock, you know, because it's not. No, no, no. And, I mean, he he is really kind of profoundly disturbed by the nature of his existence, which distresses him, you know, that he is governed by lust and he's too poor to be able to explore love. And he's horrified by the fact that, that, you know, that his body, his body might not decay. I mean, he lives at a very kind of metaphysical kind of level, but is constantly reminded of of his bodyliness, which could just, I guess, become a bit solipsistic. The whole story could become very solipsistic, except, of course, when he goes to the the the, the, the cinema, the failed cinema, and and. It, it shifts because now this person sits intrusively right next to him in this basically empty space. Um, and is that what you, I mean, is that one of the hinges of the story that, that where, I mean, in blunt terms, obviously it's a major plot, plot turn um, when the bearded, sticky it's it's so gross. <laughs> it, it's so hideous. It's but you know it's also really uh, imagistic and sensory, isn't it? Because you are you are palpably made to feel the disgustingness of this creature next to you. Um, and of course, there's no sense at that moment that he is dead or a zombie. And I think that's where he does it so well because what you do is you just have this gradual sort of. Um, building of you know sort of introducing all of the elements that are required for that ending to come off where we where we sort of go um sort of turn counter turn turn um and of course we we do end up with this this terrible glimpse of um him effectively being carted away by by the police because he's gone crazy um and and i think there's also the sort of the there's an element of that um 
I guess, especially in the end where we get to that uh, sort of external um, view, which gives you sort of that ironic distance, I think, from what's happening in the story that makes you sort of aware that this is a story that's operating on numerous levels and you're meant to keep your thinking cap on in order to get the most of the story. It's not just, um, you know, sort of slamming you for horror effect. Yeah. Yeah. Although that's part of it, it it's definitely um, and and it's also walking the line um, between becoming sort of melodrama, isn't it? Like, I mean, there is that. I mean, he's always on the edge because he's so hyperbolic, you know, like really in terms of the expression. And it's, it's sort of that edge between both. Be and I think that's where despair becomes interesting because you know sometimes you get these terribly dull, self conscious um, sort of explorations of despair that just make you go ho hum and then in this case you've got a sort of despair that is both um you know sort of it's double-edged because it's 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 so exaggerated um and it's so pushing you to the limit of of both what you sort of recognize as despair but then also making sure that you can feel the sort of i guess almost the fun element to it it's keeping you entertained even as as it's dragging you through the the despairing existential (laughs) angst of this this poor Craven character. But and also I think there's a lot of kind of cultural elements, and I don't mean the high culture of the, the mention of Augustus, you know, the, 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 in, in the, the, the silent film or the British Museum, but, but kind of about the life of, of poor young men at that time who, who have an intellect um, and can reflect on, you know, with some, uh, as he does, not really with resentment, but you know, there's he's London is is poor. It's post-war. It's it's dirty. There isn't a lot of opportunity. The relations between men and women are highly gendered. He doesn't have much to offer a, a woman because he's got no money. He's got no car. He's got no no. I don't even know. Does he, he whether he or not he has a, a job or not? Or personal hygiene, Jane. I think. Yeah, he recognises. <laughs> personal hygiene and, and he goes to sex workers and and then he actually has this very literal reason why he thinks that he might be having going mad um which is, of course is you know one of the clues that is it a clue or is it a counter clue like what's it doing where he where he thinks that he might have syphilis and and he should go to the doctor because he's got that um uh oh, i can't remember where it is but i'll find it um, where he thinks I'm, I need to see what's coursing through my blood, which of course is a reference to a problem that beset people in those in, in in those times, which was gonorrhea and syphilis, and and how it led could lead to madness. Look at Karen Blixen, you know, in she she which who did uh, as at Denison, who did catch syphilis from her husband um, when they were in Africa, and she had to return to London and. And, and be treated with, um, arsenic, which, which is what, which was a cure then for, for syphilis. So there's these sort of literal truths about, about his situation and about the, the sort of London, um, situation then. And him, this is a particularly bad day, but then it start, it escalates. 
and I think that's something really integral to to the short story in the terms of you know sort of I guess exploring the human condition you know because of the very real limitations and and in in a sense I think you know sort of that is very much part of a sort of a long genealogy of what it is to be human in terms of you know sort of people and 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 a life that doesn't sort of allow you to reach you know, sort of your potentials or, 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 the, or the, the limitations. And I think because the short story is a short form, what it does so well is it sort of compresses the narrative, it compresses the situation. And so there is this sort of sense of limitation, there's this sense of claustrophobia about, you know, sort of being inside this um, particular perspective. And then, of course, that then sort of sets up this sort of infinite regress where we have, um, you know, sort of the, 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 the impossibility of really definitively working out whether, you know, sort of that apparition beside him. Although there is really blood. Well, no, you never really know if there's blood on his hands because we don't get an outside perspective. Is, is there an outside? I can't remember. I don't think there is an outside perspective that says, oh, you've got blood on your hands. Is there or is there? Um... I'm not sure. I mean, certainly the last, I'd have to look back. Oh, no, he's damp and sticky. Uh, fills the base, what a tragedy. He gets to the police. They were interested and very kind. Yes, there had been a murder. A uh, man's neck had been cut. Oh, no, we have the murder, no doubt of it at all. Craven put down the receiver. Yeah, no, he doesn't because he doesn't actually see the police. He doesn't get to show um, his hand to them. But he does actually. So there is something uh, sort of, I guess, paranormal about the fact that he realised, you know, that that this experience, whether it was a real or an apparition, did coincide with something in the real world that was verifiable by an outside source, you know, the police. So that that's, you know, that, that that's that's fascinating. And I think that's very much part of that play of the Gothic, isn't it, where it's as much an exploration of the supernatural as the psychological, you know, and, and it's Green's ability to meld the two and all the way through, um, you know, sort of introduce the, the, the sort of the, the doubts that make the reader, um, the detective, you know, sort of trawling the narrative for the clues so that they work out whether this is, you know, sort of the real event of the horror. I I mean, I think there's enough signals there. It's asking you to believe in the possibility of a bloodied corpse or a bloodied ghost going for whatever reason to the cinema and and, and sort of uh, talking in this sort of self-aggrandising you know, mumbly sort of way with with Craven. I mean, it's just it asks you to suspend your disbelief, just as um, Neil Gaiman does in How to Talk to Girls at Parties. Because yeah. if you read, if you read either of those stories, thinking it's just N who's got the problem, they're, they're normal girls, and, or you, you, you know, the story of the story and, and I think that's one of the things that you you know you learn to appreciate in in the short story is that it's not about solving a problem as so much as holding on to all of the possibilities and realizing what a rich array that is for you <laughs> but one thing I just did want to think about in terms of that short story form or say a little bit more about which you started talking about was how well, I think one of the nice things it does is it tells us how Craven is 
day-to-day in his life. So we get a sense of this guy who goes to the the reading room and he, he earns his money however he earns his money and he's feeling pretty miserable and that's just his normal existence. So what are the things, actually what are the things that happen before the man sits down beside him There's that say, okay, what's changed on this particular day? Because we know what his days are like generally, that that is the, the status quo that we open with. And he's, you know, he's, it's just so that accretion of small things. He's walking up Edgware Road. Um, he knows the, the, all the side streets around there only too well. Then he notices the posters um, outside the disused theatre in Culpa Road. And it, and it's just that those little, you know, the little um, uh, drops of bread, the breadcrumbs, as it were, the poster, the theatre, he thinks about how the, you know, the theatre's failed. He stops and read, reads and thinks, oh, there's optimists still, even in 1930. Oh, no, it's post-World War I, not post-World War II, for nobody but the blindest optimist, the home of the silent film, and, you know, and then in he goes. So that is, so there you have, something has to have changed, because otherwise, why this day? Uh, and... This on this particular day, he's noticed it's been on the edge where off the Edgeway Road, he's noticed the posters. And then when he gets into the film, it's it that what he sees starts to encourage that worst aspect of himself, as it were, which is the thinking about the death and the body and and the, the, the human decay and, and feeling a bit confused because the film isn't quite making sense. But then that could be just because it's not a very good film. Or because he's walked in, you know, sort of midway, I think. And he's walked in midway. Or, but what he was also kind of worrying that his mind is not able to um, keep a hold of it. You know, there's a sort of doubt there. Um, but but there's enough for you, enough there in the, the writing for you to think, well, it's just a problem of having come in midway and a not very well-made film. But then the... Then, of course, you have the next stage, which is when the, the damp um, and figure comes in with, the, with his spittle and his beard and oh. his, beard, his weird revolting talk. Um, and then, of course, you've got to also have, I mean, I think by that stage you're caught in it because a, a realist approach would be, um, you know, you'd think, well, why don't you just move seats? <laughs> you know? <laughs> But there's this tension because it, that doesn't enter your mind. It's not his character to move seats because we already have this sense of him as as as, as a sort of flailing. You know, we, we we get that feeling that he's not he's not the man of action, Jane. <laughs> you know, he's he's not the man of action, and 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 I think you know that it, it is um you know sort of the, that melding of the the concrete detail. You know, the strategic planting of cues and the you know sort of the very um the very logistic the, the very logistics of the story and that melding of his sort of psychological drama with the you know sort of with the story world you know with the real world of of edgeware's road of of, of the you know sort of the 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 the, the, the grotty park bench illusions and you know all of those things result in a very it, it, it it's his ability to create that incredibly convincing and dimensional 
character that is probably where um, you know, sort of, you really get the, the the full impact of the story because it's it's our investment in Craven that allows us to, you know, sort of, I guess, accept that he doesn't move. It allows us to, um, you know, at some point we we accept, you know, Craven's worldview because it's been built so convincingly um, from from that very first moment. Um, in a way that, you know, sort of allows us to overlook, you know, sort of while we're picking up the cues that maybe he's a little bit crazy and actually, you know, sort of maybe there is a sort of a concern about uh, syphilis, maybe there is this and then maybe there is that. And I think that's that's the thing to remember about readers is that they are, they are so, they're so willing to be complicit with their characters um, and, you know, sort of that's, integral to to, to, to to I guess the the machinations of this story uh, is is the fact that we are you know he, he's repulsive but he's not so repulsive that we um, you know sort of we reject him and, and I think that, that those are sort of those thresholds are important to consider when you're writing a story you know sort of to introduce just enough that um, problematizes the character. So that when we get to the end, we can we can go back and, and want to do that sort of align, you know, does this line up with this? Does that, you know, sort of where are we by the end? But not so much that we're outside the story, you know. Oh, it, it's, oh. it's, it's got to strike that balance between, you know, sort of attracting the reader into this world, into this unique mind frame, into this, into this unique perspective, um, while you know, sort of ensuring that by the time we get to the end, um, we're, 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 we're able to relinquish Craven to his fate sort of thing and then ask ourselves, who did we become in that process, um, you know? <laughs> so um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, actually in thinking about that characterisation, I guess it's the – we've been in his – in his thoughts and, you know, moving around with him. And then the, when the man, and they have this kind of argument and you, it's, it's already, I mean, this is what such a short story, a short story can do such a, so amazingly well. When he starts having a bit of a tip with the guy, he's a bit impatient. It's a bit argumentative. Um, you know, the, 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 the man says there'd be more blood than you can imagine. And Craven says, what are you talking about? <laughs> this woman, Craven said impatiently. I mean, yeah, so we're seeing this new aspect of him, but we're all, as a shame, invested, and we feel like we know him sufficiently in the context of this this little world that we've been given. Um, that we understand that, yeah, that he will be impatient and somewhat argumentative, um, and and then of course, uh, quite distressed by the the stickiness. Well, and it gives us that dimension because, you know, sort of on one hand we've got this character who is, you know, sort of envisaging the caverns, you know, sort of filling up with bodies that aren't rotting, which is, which is, which is such a, you know, it, it, it's such an imaginative leap, you know, and it comes at you so quickly when you look at it because the whole story, I mean, how many words would that story be? You know, it's, it's only four pages. I think it's 2,000, a bit over 2,600. So it's a fabulous story in terms of realising that when you write well, when you write um, efficiently, you can achieve a very rich world and tell a very complex story 
without overcrowding the details, you know, without, um, you know, sort of cramming things in. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that brilliance of melding, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the rather terse um, dialogue of Craven, his annoyance, you know, his very, it's, it's, a, it's a very human reaction to somebody bothering you in the cinema, you know, like, shh. <laughs> you know, um, versus this, this this man who we know has walked in with this this sense of in, enormous despair, and you know I, I think that that's where you know, sort of writers build dimension because there's this um, there's there's these there's this contrasting um, these contrasts and this. Um, I guess almost you would say um, in, in, it, it's very much the experience of living is that, you know, on one hand we can be despairing, but on the other hand we'll make a cup of tea. <laughs> you know. Actually, yeah, I think you said something there about the ways character modulates because when I'm just looking at the, the towards the end, he does actually have this moment where he's absolutely sure that he is not mad and He's quite decisive. We were talking about him being indecisive. Um, when he when when he looks down, he's, it's this wasn't hysteria. This was fact. He could see the smear on his hands. He wasn't mad. He'd sat next next to a madman who, in some muse, um, you know. And then he realizes, oh my god, I must have been sitting next to the the, the murderer. Um, so there's just this wonderful, again, I think it's taking you, lifting you out of what, what could be just this sort of essentially meaningless solipsism if he just thought, oh, that was just unpleasant and horrible, yucky, and, and, and now I feel even worse. But, the, you know, the story then sort of twists again because it assures us the blood is on his hand and he's going to do something about it. And he does. He brings the police. In fact, this... This terrible situation makes him quite um, active and decisive. Um, a little bit like, um, no, no, <laughs> I was trying to find an analogy with once, but Grace Paley's story once, but it's probably not the right one. No, because I, and I think it is that well plotted short story where, you know, at, at some point, you know, sort of the writer has known that the actual twist of this story is not going to be, you know, sort of sitting next to the murderer, which would be perhaps the expected or the more traditional um, shock horror. Um, but no, it's going to be the murder victim, you know, sort of the corpse. So it's, it's that taking it that one step further, but knowing that so that in the very beginning, you can actually, um, you know, sort of foreshadow the body in the way that the body is foreshadowed. You can foreshadow um, the zombie sort of apocalypse <laughs> in, in a way that uh, he does so well with that image of the, of the catacombs. Um, and then the impression that the reader has is that when they get to the very end, that that story is well crafted, it, 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 you know, sort of all of the pieces of the puzzle come together at the end uh, in, in a way that, um, you know, I think is something that is, is often the goal of a lot of, um, a, a lot of the writers, a lot of the student writing is, is that goal of coming towards, you know, it was coming up with a story that feels, um, you know, sort of well plotted and well realised at that, at, by the end and understanding that actually you have to know your end in order to be able to create that effect. 
Mm. Um, but you, you do, but I mean, I think often you end up knowing your end through um, the process of of writing those early drafts and discovering what your end will be, and then going back and revising earlier, and then replotting towards that end that you know you've now discovered you you that's what you're after. Um, I, th- I think it's hard for a lot of us to know what the end will be without that that writing towards it. And you definitely have to get the material on the page so that you can go and do that crafting. Mm. But you know, sort of at the at, at the very end, once you come to that point of where your story is going, that's when you have their power. Like you can't try too hard at the beginning of a story because you won't get it a hundred percent right until you've got that ending down. Um, so, so pushing through the story to the end, and then going back and doing the the sort of the, the work, you know, that that needs to be done in order to create that impression of this, you know, story from start to finish that sort of has you in its thrall. Yeah, yeah. So you can imagine, you can almost imagine a process where he, where you've written written this story, sort of sketched it in with this end, and then you you have to, as it were, go back and lay all the clues and the complications and the ambiguities, um, those, those gorgeous little, lots of little breadcrumbs. Um, and the wonderful way that he inhabited that character and, and gave him the rich imaginary of, you know, sort of the catacombs and things like that. I mean, you know, that, that, that is the, the, the real, that's the real magic of the writer, isn't it? Is that ability to, to, to give a character, you know, sort of a, 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 an interiority that is is so um, so vivid and so surprising and yet so convincing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is one of the the the. the I mean, you could that sort of intense interiority really suits somebody when they're in a highly mad and distressed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> contemplating whether or not they have syphilis or not. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. I mean, the point is that that's what he worries about. Yeah. Um, that he, he just feels terribly afflicted. Um, and, and that, yeah, he's been, I mean, that sort of, he's been punished for having, for having indulged his, his lusts with, you know, sex workers, basically. Um, but yeah, but that, that notion that you have to suffer to write, uh, you know, that, well, this is a bit I'm going to edit out. <laughs> it's just, I got jumbled there. Do, do, do you think we, we, we could we could probably just about wind it up now? Do you think um, you know just just sort of say something um, something that gives it a little bit of a finale-ish feeling? Um, you know, wait a minute. How about we say something like you can see both in Green and the O'Reilly story. Um, you know, sort of the wonderful nature of the twist and the twist. I, there was no pause. Oh, there wasn't enough of a pause? Okay. Both the Green and the Riley do that wonderful thing that is, the short story is loved and revered for, which is deliver the twist and then the twist, even as you think that there can't possibly be um, something that you're not expecting from the story. I think both of them, um, you know, sort of manage to give the reader that uh, sort of the, the entertainment factor uh, that, you know, is, is, is 
surely part of what the short story does where you know the puzzle of the short story uh sets the reader uh on the edge of the seat pushes them through because they know the wonderful thing about the short story is it can be read in one sitting uh and and then delivers us the 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 the, the twist at the end um, but it's a twist that's not tricksy it's a twist. Oh. one of the best what when when I was doing Masters of Creative Writing in, in the States at Johns Hopkins, I had this great short story teacher, Jean McGarry, and she said the end of the end of the story starts much earlier, maybe in the middle. And when you get to that twist in the beginning. <laughs> and at the beginning indeed. But when you get the, what's satisfying here with that, that twist, well there's a couple of twists, but the twist at the end with the presently a little crowd began to collect and soon a policeman came. It's not tacked on. And it's not tacky. And and it's got heft to it. One of the really important things, you know, one of the really big sort of warning things is that you don't want your story to be a one-hit wonder because that's something that I sometimes see with um, Mm. student writing where they've just got this one twist and everything gets subordinated to this one twist, which is something like, oh, and it was a dream. Or, um, you, you know, actually, she's not a girl, she was a boy. You know, and it's just this, you don't want your story to be built solely for a trick. You know, it, it's got to have a lot more going on. It's, it's actually the richness of the thematics that allow that end, those endings to come off. It's the fact that they explore the human condition. It's, it's the fact that they, you know, sort of they, they, they think about um, the everyday and make it strange so that we see ourselves and the world anew. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think what I was saying earlier about both those stories being about aspects of, of showing aspects of these characters that are not, not of the everyday that you share with others. I mean, that is the point of of good writing is to take us into those secret places that we recognise and we and that are fascinating and also might, that might that might be really foreign to us. I mean, I hope for most of us that Craven's sensibility is very you know is really foreign because um, if any of the students feel similar to him, please ring Campus Wellbeing now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, this is right. I mean, actually, the two stories really. I mean, in the, in the O'Reilly story, we have this this sort of wonderful, um, you know, sort of embrace of the body <laughs> versus the Graham Green, where it's this flagellating, you know, this gross body that I have to drag around with me. Whereas um, we definitely got a sense of Bray and and Monsieur enjoying their bodies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big. Big cultural shifts there, I must say, aren't there, in terms of the the, 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 the relationship to the body between that 1939, you know, dirty, poor London setting and um, funky, they're probably in Brunswick or something in Melbourne. Um, I think we, have we, have we talked about the story enough? I think we have. I think that was lots of fun, Jane. Um, we must do this again. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us at From the Lighthouse. Please remember to like us at iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and to tune in next time. Thank you. Bye.